Today, we dive into the last of this four-part series on vulnerabilities to trafficking, a series to equip us so we can prevent trafficking from ever happening to someone and so we're better able to recognize it and report it. Today in Pride Month, we are talking about a community that is not always acknowledged when we talk about what trafficking looks like and how to support survivors, the LGBTQ community. And we know that some people may find this a touchy subject, but what's important is that we care that every person deserves to be safe. Doesn't matter on what level or on what subject we disagree with someone or agree with someone. The point is that everyone deserves to be safe, which is why we're talking about this, so we can better understand every situation and better respond. We want to acknowledge the difficulties, vulnerabilities, and discrimination faced by those in the queer community, which can make someone more vulnerable to trafficking. 40% of homeless youth identify as LGBTQ+, and 46% of them ran away due to family rejection. LGBTQ youth are 7.4 times more likely to experience acts of sexual violence than their non-LGBTQ peers, and youth providers report that many LGBTQ youth prefer to engage in sexual acts in exchange for a place to stay rather than risk experiencing the abuse and potential violence they sometimes face in youth shelters and foster care. Imagine feeling that putting yourself in that position is better than what could be faced in a place that is supposed to support you, but hasn't in the past or has hurt your friends. When you feel you have no place to turn, and no other options, that is a vulnerability to trafficking. And that is a common pattern we've heard throughout this vulnerability series. And we hope that through this series, we can break that, that through these efforts of the trucking industry, more people will know that they have options and a safe place to thrive so they never have to be exploited again. Hello everyone, my name is Helen Hofer and I'm the Freedom Drivers Project Director for Truckers Against Trafficking or TAT. And you're listening to our podcast, Driving Freedom. As I mentioned, this is our last episode in a fantastic series, our series on vulnerabilities, and I am thrilled to have two new voices with me today to close it out. First is my co-host, and it may be her first time on the podcast, but she is actually one of my longest-term colleagues. Molly, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me today, Helen. I'm so excited to be here, and I'm also very excited to introduce our guest today, Wade Arvizu, who is a human trafficking field expert, speaker, and author. Wade, it's so great to have you here with us today. Yeah, thank you. It's it's really great to be here. Thankful that you're talking about this subject, especially during Pride Month. I think it's really important, so thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Wade, can you tell us more about your background and what you've been doing since 2014? Yeah, so I typically provide just feedback and research for policies that affect the LGBTQ plus community, as well as people who have experienced trafficking. So a lot of what I do is independent consultation. I work with nonprofit organizations and government organizations like the Office for Victims of Crime in just helping them to inform, you know, procedures and programs and things of that nature. I've been doing a lot more podcasts and Zooms. I typically am traveling and speaking at conferences, but that's primarily what I do. Nice. And Wade, I know that you recently published a book called Fragments. Definitely want to point everyone there. We'll make sure to link to it in our show notes. But can you tell us a little bit more about what's in that book and how it relates to our episode today? Yeah, so uh, it's called Fragments, a post-traumatic paradigm. And I wrote it uh, a couple of years ago. It was published in June of 2019. So I guess coming up on two years. And basically, it shares a lot of what my personal experience was of being trafficked. I was trafficked by someone who married into my family over a long period of eight years from eight to 16. And it shares a little bit of my story there, which I tried to be intentional on, 
you know, sharing about the parts of my story that I think don't fit the dominant narrative that's often told in the media. And so for me, a part of that was that a lot of my trafficking took place in rural areas and was through, you know, rodeo circuits, things of that nature. And then the, you know, the other part was just the involvement of my family, which is actually a lot more common than people realize. So I shared Mm -hmm. a lot about my personal experience there, but it was written in a sort of creative way. The intention of doing that was to help them really feel what it was like to experience the the dissociation and that kind of feeling of, of never being fully present that can come from continuous abuse that happens during those developmental stages. And so The purpose of writing that book for me was really to help people understand how that complex trauma impacts a child's brain and how they kind of view the world. So definitely connects to my story, not so much to the queer part, but I will say that my second book is actually going to be published hopefully by the end of 2021 and will actually be focusing on that part, but we don't have a title yet. So you'll have to look out for it. (laughs) That's exciting. That's awesome. I'm really glad to hear that you're putting out another book now. This is happening in rural communities. We get that a lot, right? Especially as drivers are crossing the country, like, oh, certainly it's not happening in some of these areas. But we say wherever there are vulnerable people, there can be exploitation. Wade, does this have any intersection with like fewer resources for people in the LGBTQ plus community in rural areas? Or is that unrelated? So I wouldn't say that it's unrelated. I would say that there are obviously two separate things, but I do think that there are always kind of intersections when it comes to vulnerability. So people who are less likely to be accepted by their peers, by their families, are more likely to be vulnerable because they're looking for kind of acceptance and that support system that all of us need while we're growing and developing and finding out kind of who we are. I would say that specifically in rural areas, it certainly is more difficult for LGBTQ people to find resources. And so I think the combination of those things definitely makes queer people in rural areas a greater risk of experiencing that, you know, kind of rejection, bullying, um, things of that nature. And I would say that it seems pretty consistent that a lot of queer folks who grow up in rural areas tend to be less likely to come out until they're older and often until they're able to get away from those spaces, which can cause, you know, a lot of hurt along the way. Yeah, that is just so difficult. Would you mind talking a little bit more about some of the other vulnerabilities besides growing up in a rural area um, that might make someone more vulnerable to trafficking? Yeah. um, So, I mean, I think that there are a few things and really kind of what we just touched on. I think the biggest one is is really just thinking about basic needs. I know that that kind of seems silly, but when it comes down to it, I think all of us, especially, you know, as children and youth need to feel secure. And that's by, you know, having some type of consistency in friendships, relationships, family relationships, whatever that dynamic might be. And then also having, you know, a peer support system for youth specifically, that that's extremely important. When you're looking at youth who are queer or LGBTQ, trans youth, finding that acceptance can be really difficult. And I think that there's also the fact that talking about uh, sexual health or uh, sexual education that typically happens in schools, some schools still struggle to even do that. I'm in Indiana. In Indiana, we still have parents who don't want their kids having sex ed in school, but even to include uh, Mm -hmm. inclusive sex education. Yeah, Wade, you mentioned actually sex education in schools. And so can you expand a little bit on why that's important, why that's helpful and how it's impacting queer youth? Yeah, definitely. I think that, you know, when we think about um, sex education, we don't always think of how important it is, you know, for them to be able to have access to where to look. Mm -hmm. When youth specifically have questions and they don't have somewhere 
where they feel like they can ask those questions, then what often happens is people just look to the internet. You know, I actually have done surveys in schools before where, you know, I'm sure it comes as no surprise that when asking kids, if you had a question about sex and you didn't feel comfortable asking your parents or a friend, where would you find that information? And every single one of them saying online. So when you Google gay sex, you're going to get a lot of pornography websites as when you Google anything about sex really. Um, you know, that it's not an accurate portrayal of what, you know, a healthy sexual relationship would look like. And so I think that there are those things specifically, but also when you leave, you know, a kid to have to figure out for themselves what something is supposed to be like, a lot of queer youth don't even have representation when it comes to just seeing healthy relationships modeled in the media at all. And I think that's also a thing, you know, you notice if you see a gay character in a show, um, oftentimes they experience extreme trauma. And so the constant representation is, is that it's not safe to be LGBTQ, that it is taboo to talk about sex Mm -hmm. at all, that sex is connected to STIs if you're gay, you know, and just these um, kind of stigmas, I think that that become worse. And so when a person is left to figure out that information for themselves, especially when they go online, that's just can be a vulnerable place. We had an episode on online safety in the fall. We had an episode on pornography this spring, just talking about if you go online and you start searching for these things, it is so easy for kids to access that. And then what is the message they're receiving about not only healthy relationships, but also what to expect in a relationship with someone else, period. Like how are men and women, transgender and gender nonconforming people perceived is really strongly stereotyped and really and unhealthy for the way that someone perceives themselves. And so how much better would it be if you were known to be a safe person to have that conversation to give a much better context? So I love that and creating more spaces to have those conversations, right? That's what we're doing here. And even as we're talking about this, I know there's a connection between language and culture, right? We're kind of dancing around that. There are some nuances that exist in the LGBTQ plus community that should be recognized and understood if we are to effectively meet the needs of LGBTQIA plus survivors of exploitation. Can you talk to us a little bit about the importance of language and self-identification in the queer community? So uh, I didn't necessarily mention at the beginning of this you know, interview, but I am also a member of the LGBT community. I am a trans male and I'm out about my experience. Although I will say it's not always comfortable to talk about because it's so debated in the public. But I do think that it's important, especially Mm -hmm. for trans people to speak up about their experiences with trafficking and exploitation, because it can be such a taboo topic. But I think that there is also that combination of, you know, language can so often be used as a weapon against people. So I think because of that, it makes it that much more important, really just to be kind of aware of what we're saying, what language we're using. And I'm sure that you have talked about before that trafficking victims self-identify can be different, or the fact that many may not actually identify as trafficking victims for years after their victimization, if ever. I really appreciate the connection you're making with, to be said, you are a victim. Like, if that is your identity, like, sit with that. Like, how does that make you feel? I mean, do you feel, like, empowered? Do you feel appreciated, loved, dignified? How can law enforcement or uh, safe home workers, restoration home workers, people who just work with teens, how can they better work with, be prepared to support youth who are in the queer community, specifically talking about anti-trafficking work. Yeah. So, I mean, this might sound removed from trafficking work, but the first and foremost thing that I will say is just creating a safe environment Mm -hmm. for people 
to be themselves. And so that might sound like like a little thing, but you know, we mentioned rural trafficking and rural areas earlier. And there are a lot of things that, you know, contribute to the difficulty of people, you know, and their um, comfort or discomfort at coming out. But a lot of that can be related to the culture that they were raised in. Um, it may have a connection to their religion. Those are all things that can have an impact on a person. And I think that when a child or a teenager does not feel safe to come out to their parent or to be out at their school, I think that is in and of itself the biggest vulnerability when you have someone who does not mm. have a safe place. And so the best way to do that is not to wait until the time comes where you're questioning if your kid is queer or or where it doesn't get brought up at all, but is to let it come up in conversations and to let it be known, hey, transgender people exist, non-binary or people who don't identify as male or female. There is variance that exists in gender. There is variance that exists in who people are attracted to. And I think just having those conversations and recognizing in yourself how you respond to those things and maybe how your own upbringing has impacted your feelings or your beliefs. Because we, we all certainly are um, sort of molded by how we grew up and the way that we were taught to think about things. Um, so people who work with youth, I think it is very yeah. common to see youth who are actually, you know, spitting hateful language towards the LGBTQ community, if they're actually struggling with their own um, identity as a queer person, or maybe questioning their own gender. Because what happens when a kid, you know, uses a, a term that is considered offensive in front of a parent, and the parent laughs and did not say, whoa, hey, that's not okay, or make a statement there, then it says something. And so I think that kids are feeling people out and adults even as well are feeling people out to see if it's safe. And if they can't find that immediate safety, then they're going to look outside for that. They're going to look somewhere else. And I think that that is the biggest vulnerability is really just not having a safe place. And in fact, there are some statistics there that in having just one safe person that a that a, a youth feels comfortable coming out for decreases the chance of suicide. I can't even remember the percentage, but I remember that it was a lot. Um, so I think that that is kind of the biggest thing is as basic as it sounds, I think that a big piece of it is really just breaking that the silence. How important belonging is, right? I feel like that's been something that keeps coming up in our conversations around vulnerabilities is I have no one else who noticed when I started isolating, when I started only talking to this person, like no one else's was there. And we talk about that with youth. We talk about that with homeless youth, which right, there's this overlap and intersection. But we're talking about that with the immigrant population as well. Like if you don't have a language, and you don't have a community. I just want to take a moment and say like, we have all sorts of people who are listening to this podcast who may come at this topic from all different histories and experiences. The point is that it's really important to know this because this is a reality. This is what people are experiencing. And our goal here is to stop exploitation, right? Our goal here is to stop human trafficking. And so I want to take a moment to say that as well. Yeah, thanks for pointing that out, Helen. I know that not everyone agrees necessarily on sexual identity or sexual orientation, but we do know that there are real everyday impacts on people in the queer community. Could you maybe go into a little bit more detail about that, Wade? Yes. Beyond whether or not we agree on whether it's okay for a person to be attracted to the same sex or whether or not a person should be able to transition. 
gay people exist, bi people exist, trans people exist. And our beliefs are not going to change those things. The number one thing is if we ask ourselves, does every human deserve to be safe and loved? Does every person deserve to have shelter? Does every person deserve an opportunity to work so that they can take care of themselves and their family? Does every person deserve the ability to get healthcare? You know, as a transgender man, if I was to, to get ovarian cysts because I have ovaries that have not yet been removed, I could be denied by a doctor because they felt uncomfortable serving me because my ID card says that I'm male because my insurance has me listed as male. I could get cervical cancer and I could be refused treatment. I could be refused treatment from three, four different hospitals and it could take me so long to get treatment that I would die in the process. I think it, asking ourselves, is that okay? Is really the question and not so much, you know, hey, we are all going to have different opinions, but like we need to get to the basic, I think, discussion that, hey, somebody else's ability to be healthy and to be able to see a doctor if they're sick. I think, you know, those are some of the real questions. My state, in a lot of states, in my state particularly, you can get fired for any reason. Um, you don't have to be given, you know, a specific reason. There is no fault the employer or the employee, it's just a no-fault state, um, which means that a person could come out as transgender and be fired and claiming discrimination isn't going to get you anywhere uh, because we don't have to ask questions. Realizing that, you know, when a trans woman has difficulty finding a job at a Burger King because the owner of the franchise is afraid that they're going to turn away customers, well, then where is that person supposed to get work? And there's often shame connected with individuals who are working in the commercial sex industry, some of these individuals are literally just trying to survive and they actually don't have other options. It's not just saying that they don't have other options. I think that those are the things that we really need to be aware of. Right. We talk about when people aren't able to get a job somewhere, right? And so they're, they're swoops in a trafficker recognizing that vulnerability. So if you are a trans person and you're not able to get work. I mean, that is a real intersection of making someone vulnerable. And this is kind of touching on our next steps, right? What can we do to prevent this? What can we do to prevent trafficking in supporting the LGBTQ plus community? Let's talk about jobs, right? I mean, we're talking about the trucking industry. We're talking about a private industry that can create spaces and environments for people to get jobs so that they aren't ever vulnerable. So they don't even have to say, do I actually have a choice? Because they will for trucking companies or for people who have a lot of employees, if you're able to provide a training or you can require a training when somebody is onboarded uh, that talks about, we are a company that respects and does not tolerate discrimination and actually doesn't just say that, but you know has maybe an educational mm -hmm. piece that's even just something short, 10 minutes long, that talks about you know the numbers of LGBTQ people is a great place to start just by educating people. A lot of that, you know, homophobia or transphobia comes from a place of not understanding. You know, you get people who are like, oh, I don't want a gay guy next to me because then people are going to think that I'm gay. And it's just like, those aren't realistic. No one is attracted to everyone that they see, right? <laughs> <laughs> but there's just that thought that that's unfortunate that like trans people are predators or queer people are predators and like trans people mm -hmm. are people gay people are people and they're no more predators than mm -hmm. anyone else. I mean, there are pedophiles and predators that exist from every culture, from every subculture. Um, so I think that that's, that's, you know, would be a really a good place to start. 
What a great idea. And I know like, right, I know some trucking companies and some carriers, there are some communities that exist, people who are in the queer community who are also in the trucking community. And so honoring, acknowledging and supporting those groups and those people. Wade, is there anything else you would like to add? I think what I would really leave people with is to just try to take a look at your personal beliefs and take a look at your personal biases and um, how that that impacts people. And I understand that, you know, everyone comes from different backgrounds and that some people, how they were raised in their religious beliefs can cause conflicts that are there. There's a book that exists. It's called Love is an Orientation. I can't remember who the author is, but uh, it kind of addresses that topic. And I think it's a really powerful book that really being a safe place to people is, is important regardless that we have to find it within ourselves to say, okay, I am actually responsible in some way, even if that just means speaking up to say that everybody deserves access to healthcare jobs and uh, someone to support them. Wade, thank you so much for taking the time to be here today to share with us. I really appreciate you sharing uh, your experiences and your expertise with us and with our audience. It is critical that we know this information so that we are better able to stop trafficking from happening or report it when we see it. So audience, remember, You can make an immeasurable impact in someone's life if you are that safe person, that place of belonging where they know that they will be protected and defended no matter who they are. And so you have a powerful role to play in the lives of the people around you and in your communities to provide a place where everyone could feel safe, where everyone feels like they actually have choices beyond turning to being exploited. You can request training for your staff. You can learn more about the real LGBTQ2IA community. There's a lot of great information out there. We will definitely include information in our show notes. And thank you so much for listening, for learning, and for taking action throughout this series. And a bit of housekeeping. As it warms up, we are actually also getting back out on the road. It means we actually have less time to do this very amazing podcast. So we are going to go down to one episode per month. We're going to release that episode on the second Wednesday of the month. As always, please make sure to rate and review, subscribe to the podcast. The more you do that, the more people are able to see the episode and share it with their friends and family members. You are critical members of your neighborhoods, your families, your communities. And because of that, you truly are driving freedom. 